Hey, Carolyn Aarons from Renovari here. Before we jump into this episode with Nathan, I want to let you know that the new season of the Renovari Book Club is here. It's a way to be intentional about reading for spiritual growth. We put a lot of prayer into choosing four books, and then we provide a reading plan, study guides, Q&A webinars with the authors and facilitators, and options for group discussion. The first book, How to Pray, is facilitated by the author, Pete Gregg. We recommend joining by September 14 to get the first book before reading starts. Learn more at renovari.org slash book club. Once more, that's renovari.org slash book club. We have to be rigorously honest. We cannot lie and hide or we don't get well, right? Welcome to the Renovare Podcast, a place for honest conversations about interactive life with God. I'm Nathan Foster, and my guest today is Diane Bolduck. Diane is the founder of Bridges, a Christian addiction recovery effort, And for 30 years, Bridges has been offering support groups and leadership training for those in ministry. Diane's work is deeply relational. Walking alongside others, she's seen amazing transformations, and she's seen death. After living 40 years, professionally and personally, at the intersection of church, addiction recovery, and spiritual formation, The knowledge and experience she has of just how people change is quite profound. Possibly the most significant movement of God in the 20th century happened largely unnoticed by organized Christian efforts. Tucked away in community centers and church basements, 12-step efforts has impacted millions. Here's a quote from Dallas Willard. Any successful plan for spiritual formation, whether for the individual or group, will in fact be significantly similar to the Alcoholics Anonymous program. I spoke with Diane over a video call from her home in Maine. Diane, you've been a part of Recovery Community for over 40 years. Could you uh, help folks understand a little about what that process was like for you, what you found in those rooms? Sure. So the beginning, I was 19, okay, when I first walked into the halls of recovery. And I remember seeing the 12 steps on the wall and seeing the word God. I was completely terrified and wanted to turn and run because I was pretty sure that I had disappointed God to the point where he didn't really want anything to do with me. So the process for me, there's a saying in recovery, I came and I came and I came and then I came to, and then I came to believe. And for me, what that meant was I came to believe that I was lovable and valued, and that God had not given up on me. And I learned that I could be accepted even with all my mistakes, with all the shame and the pain um, that I was, I was worthy of being loved. And I found that 
that unconditional love opened me up to self-examination and a desire to really grow and change. I wanted to be who these people thought I was. <laughs> <laughs> but not in a fake way. Not right. in a fake way. No. Some of the most honest spaces you can find in society around the tables. Do you, would you say that? Absolutely true. Yes. What do people find? If someone walked into a meeting, what would they, what would they hear? Oh, so much laughter. An ability to laugh at ourselves, to love and accept one another with our struggles, uh, a common sharing of both joy and pain, um, a willingness to bear one another's burdens, to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. A beautiful representation of what Christian community can look like. Right, but often does not. There's this almost bizarre, the only place I've ever seen it, I've seen it in counseling practice, but this movement from just guttural honesty, people saying stuff that it just, you know, it, to laughter, you know, to tears, to hope. And then mm-hmm. all of this, you know, people are not responding, they're not asking questions, but they hear it. And they feel heard, you know, and then the, yes, thank you. They thank the person yes. for sharing, but just this kind of conglomerative of guttural emotion all mixed together. It, and it's beautiful, right? It is beautiful. And I think the, the understanding that it's not my job to fix you. That's right. That I've got, I need to take the plank out of my own eye, right? To use biblical language. Instead of trying to take the, the, you know, toothpick out of yours, the splinter, <laughs> and I, I think that it's, um, it's just a wonderful thing to experience to be able to be fully known and feel really loved and valued, um, and yet not have someone, you know, roll out some action plan for me to fix all the junk. I mean, that's forbidden. Yes. Greatly discouraged. I mean, mm-hmm. there are those who still, <laughs> but yes, it is greatly discouraged. Like uh, we're we here, share we're our here. experience, strength, and hope, right? This is correct. The... Yes, we're not here to fix one another. I I really like stepping back a little and looking at the twelve steps as a. Um, well, I once heard a therapist say it's a treatment for personality disorders. Mm. Okay, now as a clinical social worker, that language, I mean, I listened because it's commonly known personality disorders, you really, you know, there isn't necessarily treatment for them. But in terms of a program for transformation into Christ likeness, the step, there's a, a brilliance to this, but it starts with this brokenness, awareness of dependency. Could you talk a little bit about how, how we begin with brokenness, but it's really a gift? Oh, coming to that place of just utter despair and saying, I need help is such a difficult thing because it bumps up against our pride, right? Especially in the U.S., right? We can do it. We can do it. We can do everything. And uh, to come to that place of saying, I'm utterly powerless and I need help 
you know, in recovery, we would call that the gift of desperation. And it does become a gift because then when I reach for help and I find in the halls that their help is available, that it's there and that I'm not just given a plan of action. I'm people come alongside and walk with. And so that gift of community comes from that desperation and that brokenness. A shared desperation, right? There's a shared story. And then, and people, this is the thing that just amazed me. People give you their phone numbers and say, call me anytime. And they really mean it. They really mean it. And if I go further, view it as a gift to be asked to be engaged, right? Like you call me at two in the morning. That's a a way that I work out my recovery. It's not an obligation, right? It's a privilege. It's a privilege to, right? Whenever the hand reaches out, you know, I'm responsible. It's, and that, that understanding that I give it away in order to keep it. You know, I think if we as believers understood that principle, that as I'm sharing and giving, not not preaching, I'm not talking about that, but as I share my life and I, I give out of my heart, that I actually increase and grow in my own life, I think we'd be very different people. And it's something I've seen almost all my life in the halls, just this humility and this willing to go above and beyond the call of duty, right? We wouldn't even call it. Not as a martyr or no. this, is, this is, service is a way of life, right? Yes, exactly. Yes, service as a way of life. I mean, if we kind of overview the steps, this beginning of brokenness, I need God, I need others, and then I need to, cl- I need to look at myself. I need to clean house. Can you talk a little bit about that process of people you know, searching fearless moral inventory. And what, yeah. what, is that, what does that look like for people? So terrifying <laughs> <laughs> in the beginning, um, completely terrifying because, you know, myself included, and I've never really known anybody who gets into recovery who just isn't covered in shame. So, you know, the beginning, that's why a sponsor is so important, right? Someone to come alongside it and help because the tendency just to be grossly morbid about I'm the worst and I've done the worst and I'll never be. So, you know, it's a moral inventory. It's not an immoral inventory. And so, right. And so the sponsor really can help. And in our case, like as Christians, the spiritual director can really do something very similar to just help us have perspective and to begin to see it's not all dark, it's not all negative, that there are good things, and that even in the darkness, there can be invitations for growth. In fact, often that's where the invitations for growth are, as we examine those really dark places, those really broken places. Those are the areas where we can grow the most. I found the process of a fourth step being just absolutely liberating. I'm holding nothing back and I'm sharing it with another person, you know. And then, and I love how you said that because in the darkness, we begin to paint a, a, a true picture, right? Of, mm, yes. you know, who we are and things we need who to work on, but also some of the ways we've adapted and survived. And 
And then seeing people do that process and seeing what it does to them to just, I mean, you almost can tell people, you, you almost can see someone who's done it who, who hasn't done it. There's no question. And oftentimes when people refuse to do it, it leads to relapse because it is that core shame that leads to wanting something to numb out, right? It's, be, it's in that pain that we reach for something to numb out. So when we understand that the relief comes from doing the work, that's where the relief is. In the past, I reached for a drug or a drink or, but now. Or a, a, another person or food yeah. or, right? This yes. is, there's all Fill in the of, blank. Yeah. Exactly. So I think it's great that you found the fourth step liberating. I, again, I find it terrifying. It wasn't until I sat down with a sponsor to do the fifth step. And I very reluctantly read my fourth step and the lady looked at me, she's long since passed away and said, oh, Diane, you don't have the corner on that market. (laughs) (laughs) And then, then it was like, well, okay. So I'm, I guess I'm not the worst person in the world. And that, then it was very liberating, but I do see why people resist. You know, it's, it's James chapter five, right? 516, we confess our faults to one another that we're healed. But there is very much a reluctance to do that. So this process of, I need God, I need others, I need to look at myself, and I need to confess that to another person, and, 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 then, I, and then I get to clean house, and I get to make, make amends. Make and amends. then the, this ongoing process of spiritual practices, really... Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about how you see people doing spiritual disciplines, even though they wouldn't necessarily use that language? Um, What does that look like? Oh, there's so many. Um, Beginning every day with prayer, right? One of the things we talk about is put your shoes under the bed at night so that when you get up, you have to get on, in the morning, you have to get on your knees (laughs) to get them. (laughs) And so just the simple act of, you know, getting on our knees in the morning to pray or using a devotional to quiet the mind before the day begins, um, serving others, um, you know, doing service work in the recovery halls, you know, whether it's setting up chairs or cleaning up or making coffee, that, that piece of service uh, and humbly willing to be there for others by giving out the phone number, being willing to be a contact. Um, and there's so much more. And there's so much good to be found in this. I, I think it's a really simple process. And then this community of others, broken people who are honest with each other, who laugh together, cry together, are available to each other. Yet you've also had your foot in another community, the church. How has that brought life to your recovery? So I think what happens for many, if not most, of people who really get on a spiritual journey through the 12 steps, there comes this point of just wanting more spiritually. And there are 11 step retreats, which are very, very helpful and can help people, you know, step. Give people the 11th step. Okay. 11th step is sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Okay, so they're retreats, 11-step retreats. Yes, retreats. Now, often they are inclusive of all faiths, which, you know, 
several times. I mean, many times people in the church have issue with that, but understanding that people are on a journey, um, they're very helpful. And many times they are led by Christians, but even in those retreats, God will often awaken a desire for more. And so that's where the church can really provide a bridge to just more spiritual growth and more formation. So for me, nine years sober and having, you know, tons of struggles with the church in the past, um, I walked back into a church and said, I want more. And um, <laughs> you're not going to be able to say this, but I got more than I bargained for. <laughs> <laughs> You can say that. Well, it it came with its own challenges. I mean, it came with its own challenges. I walked in, I think, with because so I'd been nine years in recovery, right? And so I've got this. I have now have a community mindset. I have a service mindset. I have a confess your faults to one another mindset. I understand and know unconditional love, and I walk back into the church all these years later expecting to receive the same thing in the church community. And I'm shocked because people don't have the language. Oftentimes I would talk with people and they wouldn't know how to deal with their anger or they wouldn't know how to deal with resentments. They didn't know how to self-examine. Now, I would love to tell you that it was just that church, but it was often my experience that people didn't have the language or the experiences. Exactly. Um, formation for me, I mean, wh- which I now understand the 12 steps is formation, but in the churches up here, that language was not being spoken. So now it's much more available. There are churches in my area that you can find a spiritual director or you can find people who talk about formation, but that just was not the case. So I walked in and I remember thinking, why don't these people love? Like, where's the love of God? And it made me very sad. I just remember seeing this huge deficit, but wanting very much to honor God, to know more about the Bible, and to worship. I love the music, which is, you know, I love hearing the word being taught, but that community for me was still very much lacking in church. What do you think would help? I think the the movement towards small groups in the last few years is a, a great step in the right direction. But I have found that people need training of even how to facilitate a small group. I think that there needs to be someone to help people stop being religious, to take the masks off and to bear one another's burdens and be real without knowing that that's what God was doing in and through my life. As I look back, I realized that oftentimes I would go into a situation (laughs) and I would have this great angst, you know, that people weren't being real. I was, would always be like internally screaming that when I was that one that God sent because he would ask me to share my experience, strength, and hope. And, you know, I had the privilege back in the fall of leading a a fairly good-sized women's Bible study. And 
it's just how God has developed me to just be open and honest, right, about where I've been and and even what I struggle with today. Not things that I struggled with 40 years ago, but things I struggle with now, right? As a born-again, God-loving woman who, you know, still struggles greatly. And I can't tell you how many of those women um, reached out to me afterward and said, you know, thank you for your authenticity. And now you would think that that would make me feel happy, right? But it saddened me greatly because I don't think it should stand out the way that it does. I can't imagine someone in the halls of recovery coming up to me and saying, oh, thank you for being honest. (laughs) It's like, no, honesty is like, it's expected, right? It's just a given. Yeah. If I'm not honest, someone's going to be in my face after the meeting and saying, look, you know, (laughs) you're you're just, exactly. (laughs) But I, I, so while it sounds like this compliment to me, it, it saddens me greatly that authenticity and just the ability to be honest and talk about brokenness in the midst of our walk with Christ is such an oddity. It yeah. should not be. It should be the norm. That's right. Right? We're, we're walking this road together. And yes, so I find that deeply sad. What is the term about honesty? Brutal honesty? Rigorous honesty in all our affairs. Rigorous. We have to be rigorously honest. We cannot lie and hide or we don't get well, right? It's not a stretch to say that people's capacity, willingness, ability to be honest is literally a life, a, an issue of life or death. No question. And yet, I've often seen in the churches, people feel obligated to hide, obligated to not reveal their struggles because somehow they think if they reveal their struggles, they are dishonoring Christ. Well, I should be happy, joyous, and free. I should have it together. I should, and the shoulds, right? It, it cripples us. And I think that the world is looking for an authentic church. The world. I believe that if more people were authentic, we would see more people want to be Christ, like want to follow Jesus, right? Instead of this religious facade of I'm holier than thou and I And I mean, I know some really wonderful, wonderful people who hide. So I I don't mean to write everybody off. Well, there's a time and place for it too, right? I mean, right. Oh, yeah. There has to be a purpose to it. I mean, there is something kind of twisted about just wanting to share every dark thing. Right, right. It's (laughs) not helpful for anyone. Right. Someone in the line at Target. It's like, (laughs) not happening. Could you say a word on the gift of recovery? And I'll just kind of set that up. I I remember someone once saying to me, a day will come where you're grateful that you got your teeth kicked in, you know? And I thought, you are so full of it. There's no way. Mm. But it didn't take that long to begin to see living from a state of dependency on God and others absolutely freeing. Would you echo that? Yes. I mean, compared to living in a state of dependency on alcohol and drugs or abusive relationships or shopping or Netflix or, I mean, those, those dependencies leave us empty, right? And reaching for yet something else to fill that void. 
But dependency upon God and community fills us to overflowing so that we have something to give to others. I have rarely walked out of a 12-step meeting that I did not just feel completely filled to capacity. I have sat in so many meetings and felt the manifest presence and glory of God. Just felt the love of God, the pleasure of God in those halls. And so this tremendous gift of being fully known and fully loved and being able to bear one another's burdens in such a beautiful way, I can't imagine how I would have come to it had it not been through just complete brokenness and depravity in my own soul. Tell me about Bridges. So, Bridges is a ministry here in Maine for people who are in 12-step recovery. Well, primarily, it's an acronym. It means building relationships, inspiring deeper growth, equipping those who serve. So, understanding that First and foremost, if we before we can inspire anyone, right, we really need to build relationships with, with people. So my husband Mark and I, before COVID, <laughs> had a van ministry. And not only would we bring people to church, but we would do other things to just build community and build relationships with people who um, were in rehab. And We have done a support group for a number of years, which sadly right now is not happening again due to the virus. And mostly we've just come alongside and, you know, to use a scripture, been able to comfort with the comfort with which we've been comforted, right? Because God has brought us out of this terrible darkness. And so the beauty in that is to just be able to come alongside and say, I've been where you've been. Or I've been where you are, and I know what that feels like. And there's a better way. There's another way. It doesn't have to be this way. What a gift to be able to do that and to know that it's true. And then to know the road, right? I know the road. Just come. And it's just been a tremendous blessing. Uh, You know, sadly, we've had... We have a huge opioid crisis in Maine, as we do in the United States, and we've had a lot of, we've lost a lot of people. They die of overdose or mostly overdose, and um, that part's been really painful, Um, but the gift to be able to stand in that gap with people and and just say, you know, there's a way out, Um, there are tremendous success stories that we've seen, just people who have have gotten a vision that there's a better way and have gotten out, you know, have gone back to sometimes high school, then college, then gotten married and buying houses. And we had uh, a one young couple who were married just a few years ago. Now they're both counselors in the rehab that they were both in and they just bought a house. And those joys of being able to see the joys of people who, um, who get out. And, and find the path and, and then joyfully for us, find Christ and just run with everything they have. That's good. Is there anything else you'd like to say? 
Oh, there's so much more. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's really hard to just... <laughs> it is so hard because my... Well, first of all, my ADD is all over the place. <laughs> when I first went back to church at 29, I made up my mind that um, the previous nine years, um, well, they were just they were just a thing of the past and that God had used recovery to kind of get me back on track. Right. And now it was time to like be in the church and um, be a good Christian. And I didn't go to meetings for quite a few years after that. And I don't know what happened. I wound up going with a friend one day, several, it had been probably five years since I'd been to a meeting. And it was like this huge wake up call of how malformed I'd become in the last five years, only going to church. You've mentioned the term religious addiction to me before. Yeah. Could you describe that? When I went back to church at 29, still with a very strong tendency toward addiction, right? Still with that core of, I want to be good enough. I want to be enough. Now I'm in church. Now I need to make it up for God for all the bad things I did. It was such a setup to becoming religiously addicted. And what I mean by that is doing all the right things, overdoing all the right things, trying to be good enough for God, uh, reading the word constantly, you know, uh, praying constantly, serving constantly, trying to measure up and trying to make up for the past. I remember a friend of mine in recovery said to me angrily, like when I was in this place, um, Diane, a lot of us love Jesus. We just don't wear it on our sleeves. And so in my piety, I thought I was being, you know, wrongly persecuted. And the fact is, you know, it was probably God himself saying, Diane, like, get off it. Like, <laughs> just go back to being real, will you please? <laughs> Do us all a favor. Uh, but the church was a great place to hide, too. So, like, I went into the church and I didn't want to tell anybody about my past and didn't want to tell anybody I had ever been through rehab. And so it was just a great hiding place, you know, wore the right clothes, said the right things. But that was, that was an important part of your journey, right? Because that was a a step of faith, like a, a boldness that I'm assuming was born out of a good heart. It was, it was, I was trying to make it up to God, right? Because I'd been this addict off in the church and off in recovery. So that I went through this ping pong of, you know, in church, then in recovery, then back in church and back in recovery. So it took several years before I could realize it wasn't either or, that it was both and, that I needed both, that God was using both. And now seeing the integration of my soul, you know, in formation, not only through Renabare in the Institute, but through recovery. And seeing the overlap has just been such a gift to me and very healing um, of that shame of, well, I had to go over there because I couldn't do it the right way, right? It's like, no, God in his mercy said, okay, Diane, like just come over here for a while and I'll show you. And then you can go over there and I'll show you a few things. And then you can go over there. So like, the Lord has been with me in all of it. And so now to see how he's using all of it, I'd love to give all of it 
to both sides, if that makes sense. I would love to give more formation to people in recovery. And I would love to give that sense of community and humility and service to churches who are really wonderful communities, but just don't have the tools or the language. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was Diane Bolduck. If you'd like to further explore recovery efforts, I think you'll find Alcoholics Anonymous's book, 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, a good place to start. Also, Trevor Hudson has written a book titled One Day at a Time, discovering the freedom of 12-step spirituality. And one of Diane's favorite resources is Tyndale's Life Recovery Bible. Some of you might even want to visit a 12-step meeting. Even in modestly sized cities, you'll find multiple meetings happening every day. Many of them are open meetings, meaning anyone is welcome to visit. I think you'll be surprised how gracious folks are to visitors. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to the Renovare Podcast. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort which offers resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find articles and other resources at our website, renovare.org. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast. We love hearing your questions or thoughts. You can email podcast at renovare.org or tweet at Renovare. This podcast is produced by Brian Morricon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. Until next time, be well, friends. Be well.